Welcome to Talking Giants. I'm your host, Bobby Skinner, coming to you from Florida, here with my friend, my co-host, Danny King, coming to you from New York. Danny, we got 75 days until New York Giants football. That That's just crazy to me. It's like, the summer's just starting, but now we're already talking about training camp next month, and it's already the season's almost here. That's just crazy to me. I was thinking to maybe make it like a, a, like a listeners-only inside joke for the page because we've been doing the you know the countdown with the players yeah to until giants football and i was thinking about on wednesday for 74 days until giants football putting a picture of eric flowers <laughs> and just seeing what kind of reaction he could get just like just spice our wednesdays up a little bit <laughs> uh what, what do you think of that idea i mean i will definitely get a lot of comments a lot of very comments that are not so nice towards Eric Flowers, but I'll get a few laughs out of them because they're probably all going to be right about Eric Flowers. I think I'm definitely going to do it, so people who listen to the show within the first two days will will get that joke. Others will be like, are you guys freaking kidding? What are you doing with Eric Flowers? But with everyone doing tweets that are solely to get people intera- interactions with you, even if it has nothing to do with you personally, like, you know, have you seen all these tweets? It's like social experiment. Reply with your favorite Chicago Bear player of all time. Don't read the replies. So, yeah. well, what are you experimenting socially? You just want people to interact with your tweet. There's no experiment you're doing. No, yeah, I saw this one uh, tweet that was like social experiment. Can you name uh, this whole basketball team? It was one of the USA teams from back in the day. It was like, don't read the comments if you don't know. I was like, what am I reading? Why is this something happening right now? Yeah, I, I did one for the from Simple Man, being like social experiment, like and reply to my tweet, and it actually had pretty decent interaction. So all you got to do is just say social experiment, and people automatically reply. You get more interaction with your Twitter. You can tell people, you can brag to people at work. Like eighty five people replied to my tweet. I think I'm doing something right, even though it has nothing to do with you. No, nah, it's just all people for some reason are all in the mood to reply and have play play the game. That's all it is. Yeah, it's a social experiment, even though we're not experimenting anything. All right. before we, So we have Dan Shiner coming up, uh, and then we'll do mailbag after that. But the only news that has been out there since our last episode on Friday, unfortunately, is Odell. And I debated whether I wanted to talk about this or not. But I think it was a decent enough dig at the Giants where we should talk about it. At least a little bit. I don't want to go too in-depth on it. But I know there's people like, oh, stop talking about Odell, stop talking about Odell. And I know that like like we we do want to talk about him when he says something like this. I don't want I'm not gonna dwell on it and freak out over it. But let me just read the quote so I don't get anything wrong. Hold on, I'm pulling it up. It is he said, I can't wait to get going. I just felt with the Giants I was just stuck at a place that wasn't working for me anymore. I feel like I wasn't going to be able to reach my full potential there mentally, physically, spiritually, everything I felt capable of doing. I just couldn't see it happening there. So I think allowing me to be in an environment where I can be myself and give it a different approach, I feel like my football benefit. I'm just excited about being able to play football again. 
and not have to deal with all the other stuff and politics that came with my previous role. Danny, what are what are your thoughts on that? Well, my first thought is I remember when Odell said Nami like a few weeks ago he's going on a social media blackout, and then he went on a full rant on the Giants. But I mean, I'm not sure where he's coming from with all this. If he if he had such a problem with the Giants, why did he re-sign with them for the five years, ninety million? If he wasn't happy here, he shouldn't have re-signed that contract. And I mean, this team helped get helped get to the playoffs with him. I'm not saying this team helped launch him. He did that himself by his play. But the te- New York gave him a huge platform to be the player who he is. And so him taking a shot at the Giants, it's unnecessary. He's the one that really did this to himself with the video in France. That wasn't him, but he put himself in that situation. The ESPN interview. Uh, just It was just countless things that led up to just this boiling over. And him going at the Giants like that, it just doesn't make much sense. It just makes the Giants look even more right in the long run and possibly trading him. Yeah, I, and I've been pretty steady with where I stand with Odell. This is the dig at the Giants. He's not over it, which I get. Like, it's, it's a very huge thing in his life. I get it. And he didn't want to go to Cleveland. He might have wouldn't wanted to be out in New York, but he didn't want to go to Cleveland. And Odell, he's just kind of immature, and it's – He's kind of shown himself that way, and I don't think he was being held back by the Giants. Obviously, we weren't winning, but he was setting records. Although, I think Odell would be playing really good no matter where he was. I mean, look at DeAndre Hopkins with all the QBs he's had to deal with, and he's continuing to put up really good numbers. Although, Odell's have been better than his. So, he wasn't held back, like, statistically-wise and stuff like that. And to say politics, it's like, Odell, you were your own politics. You brought everything that happened upon yourself. And I know I've stated this, but I guess we haven't talked about it in a while where I stand with Odell. I defended every single thing he did until the ESPN Josina Anderson interview. And that made everything before that look worse because all that stuff was kind of like a crime of passion, you know, punching the hole in Green Bay, um, the boat, the boat trip. I, I, I think that gets a little overblown, although it didn't I didn't like it. Um, Josh Norman. Um, the kicking that stuff that didn't bother me too much. Um, just, it was a bunch of, it was like, you know, death by a thousand wounds. And then that ESPN interview was just over the top. That was premeditated. That was like, man, what, are you serious? Like what in your, what in your mind made you think that this was an acceptable thing to do was go out and bash the play calling and, and say that Eli can't get it done. Like it just was really stupid. So that's when I completely changed in Odell. And then four days later in the Eagles game, when he left for the locker room uh, at halftime, like a play or two early. And that's when I, that's when that happened. I said, I went on the record and said, trade him. I'm done with this. And so that's where I stand with Odell. He's not over the giants. Um, Now this wasn't like some harsh dig, but it was a dig um, more so than the other stuff in the past. Obviously there was that Twitter rant. He went on uh, maybe a month ago or so, maybe a little longer. When uh, Dan, when that article came out where Dave Gettleman said, you know, there's been a culture change. Um, but like the like remember remember the arm strength thing where he's like, you know, Baker Mayfield has, you know, have to get used to having a you know a uh, harder ball come in. Like that wasn't a dig. People made that bigger than it was. But like where I stand with Odell, like I'm glad that we made the trade. And I think even like a lot of people hated the trade. And I'm completely fine if you don't like the Giants trade. Like, if you don't think it makes sense football-wise, that's completely fine. And I get, I understand that. 
I tend to disagree because, you know, we don't add Golden Tate if it isn't Odell. So you could kind of include Tate in that trade package. You know, you get um, Zeitler wasn't in part of that, but you get Peppers, you get the, the, the number 17 pick and then a fourth round pick. Um, so I, but I completely understand if he doesn't, if you don't think it makes a football, uh, makes sense football wise. But even like almost all of the people who hated the Odell trade, look at these comments and we're like, ah, come on, man. Like, what, what are you doing? Just stop it. So it's, I, I think we're all becoming more at peace with the trade the further and further away. And the more and more Odell talks about it. Like this, this him constantly keeps somehow coming back to the Giants. I mean, he's dwelling too much on the past. I've said it before. He just focused on being in Cleveland. He's there with his best friend, Jarvis Landry. And as you said, maybe he didn't want to go to Cleveland. Ultimately, he wanted to play with Jarvis Landry. That was probably the goal ever since the beginning was to somehow get on a team with Jarvis Landry and bring that team to the top. But that's also, like you said, I defended many of Odell's antics. Um, one antic that people hate was when he uh, lifted his leg in Philadelphia and started the pee in it. I love that celebration personally. Oh, I'll because... still defend that. I love that move. I even put that out, and Brown fans why. somehow got a hold of it and were like, oh, yeah, baby, like this is amazing. I was like, listen, I like the celebration, but this doesn't make him a Brown. Um, no, but, yeah, yeah like, that's a, like I'm, all, I'm all for disrespectful celebrations. No, yeah. And, but it's just – as I said, it's just him dwelling on the past too much. As he, it was a big moment in his life to get traded, especially the way he did, having all the articles saying that uh, Odell, could he get traded, then having your GM say, we're not, we didn't sign him just to trade him, and then ultimately get traded when he's on, when he's in, on like, Italy, I believe he was, and have to get that call. But just him taking unwarranted shot at the Giants, it just doesn't make sense. Like, this year, say, Cleveland could do terrible and the Giants could do good, and it would just make the Giants look even smarter in trading Odell and showing that this team wasn't solely about Odell. It's just, I just hope he just focuses on Cleveland, because that's where his attention should be, because they need him, because Cleveland actually has a chance to compete this year. So he keeps dwelling on the Giants, is going to hurt Cleveland ultimately this season. Yeah, I just think he's immature, and he just says stuff. Like, I, I think a lot, like, a lot of stuff he just kind of says as digs, which is fine. Like, I, I honestly, I really am over it. Although, like, it, we're going to talk about it and it is going to, like, you are, like, I did spend time on Friday talking about it. The further I get away from it, it's like, okay, whatever. Like, you know, take, take your dig. It's, it's, it is what it is. I'm not going to make a huge deal about it. And it does, like, it doesn't make me even ha- happier about the trade. Although, because I was already in the camp of, like, that Josina Anderson interview pissed me off and i just thought it was so dumb and i thought a guy capable of doing that can be can get way worse than what this is but basically that's all i have on it. i don't, I don't want to dwell on it too much yeah the only reason why we're really given this time is because one there's no news and training camp's not even close yet if this was around training camp time i guarantee it would be it'd be getting coverage but it wouldn't be like the main topic of giants land because there'll be more important stuff to talk about than d- dwelling about odell's comments that's really what it is. I mean, when he went on that Twitter rant uh, a month or so ago, it was around draft time. Me and you literally didn't even talk about it. Um, I think it was actually like two days before the draft. So we're just like, we're focused on the draft. Right? Like We literally didn't talk about it. So it is what it is, yeah. and, and we can move on. Um, anything else before we move to the interview? No, we got nothing else. All right, sounds good. All right, we have from 24-7 Sports, CBS, Dan... 
China. All right, so a lot of people are starting podcasts today. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. Their creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will, di- it will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one play. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You'll be glad you did. All right, we now welcome on to the show Dan Snyder of 24-7 Sports, CBS Sports. Dan, how you doing? What's going on, Bobby? Happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I want to start off with who are you, Dan? How did you get to where you are, and, and what do you do? Yeah, I mean, my story is kind of an interesting one. I was working in advertising uh, right outside of college. I mean, throughout my life, my passion has been sports writing and writing about football and the X's and O's of the football game. And that was just something I never really figured I could turn into any kind of career. Um, because, you know, a lot of people told me along the way, oh, you're going to journalism school? What are you crazy? It's a dying industry. So there were two parts of the journalism school at Wisconsin where I went to school, University of Wisconsin in Madison up there. And one was broadcast uh, in print and the other was advertising and that's uh, PRs, things like that. So I went that route. Um, got that job at a, at, a, at a college and was there for a, about a year. And by the end of it, I, I hated my job. I hated my life. I would literally go to work every day thinking like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And while I was doing that, I started just writing about sports, a little blog on my own. Um, but nothing really stuck with that because that's kind of a hard route to go. And then finally, one night on Twitter, I saw Chris Wessling, who actually used to be kind of a lead guy at Roto World. Then he got a job at NFL.com uh, shortly after that. So that's where he is now. But Chris Wessling posted something on Twitter like, you know, the Roto World uh, Twitter account is so mismanaged. And, and it was a really, it was a candid thing he said. And I was surprised, you know, it was so mismanaged. It's like, we're not taking advantage of this. And I just sent him an email that night out of the blue, like, hey, man, listen, I know NFL, this and that. And I'd love to get started and just do it for free and just run the, the Roto World Twitter account. Um, and so I did that for a little while. And unfortunately, I didn't do that for too long because it was right around the same time, Bobby, that I actually was diagnosed with cancer, something I've since beat. Um, I haven't really shared that too often, but I came out and shared it a few, you know, about a year ago on, t- on Twitter with some of the Giants faithful. So at this point, most people know, but that kind of dropped me off, put me into a little bit of a dark place. But through that first opening at Roto World, running their social media account, I met Mike Clay, who actually is now a big shot with ESPN, running their fantasy football over there. But at the time, he was running pro football focused fantasy. So he gave me a shot. Writing for Pro Football Focus Fantasy. I'm still doing that today. Now six years running, uh, six seasons running. That's pretty. That's I really like writing for them because they're based on analytics and and stats and all the things that I like. Um, and through that, uh, leveraged that into a position with Fox Sports. I was with Fox Sports for three years. Eventually ran their fanhood program, and then Fox Sports said we're going to go all digital. We're going. I mean, I'm sorry. We're going to go all video with our digital presence on FoxSports.com, and they got rid of their entire editorial team, myself included. Uh, luckily, though, after a few months, landed on my feet. 24 7 sports and cbs sports and got a cool job there because you know there were two more positions opening one was a beat writer for the giants the other was for the broncos and obviously a uh, pretty easy choice for me i had my choice at the time of both both positions so since then i've just been grinding doing that and more importantly though right now i'm pretty excited about the big blue banter podcast the podcast i started about a year ago now with, uh, with my buddy uh nick turchin um you guys guys might know on twitter and the goal of this podcast was to, was to differentiate ourselves, take a look at all 22 film, 
and kind of cut through all the bullshit and get to just the actual stuff we want to talk about when it comes to the game of football and how it affects the Giants. So that's kind of my whole spiel there, Bobby. But hopefully I didn't uh, you know, go on for too long there. No, no. And then, you know, that the story of the diagnosis, I had no clue about that, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm fairly new to the Twitter world, like less than a year. Um, and part of that is, you know, trying to grow all this stuff. And what you, you know, you mentioned your podcast, the Big Blue Banter podcast, and I, I really enjoy it because I'm the same way as you guys. Like, you know, we'll, we talk about the storylines. In fact, we, you know, we even talked about Odell earlier in the show, even though, you know, a lot of people don't like that, but it's like, there's nothing going on. So we figured we talk oh, about yeah. it, but <laughs> I, I love watching the film, getting down to the tape and then kind of coming to your own conclusion on these guys. And that's why I appreciate you guys. I know you guys just did a show on Daniel Jones. And you can actually learn from it instead of, you know, and it's not a shot at anybody else, but most other shows are just kind of giving some raw takes. And if there's evidence behind it, cool. But there, there's it's just kind of people just talking where I, I can appreciate your guys stuff where at least, even if, you know, someone doesn't agree with you, they know that you guys are doing your homework. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Bobby. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to start off. We're going to talk a lot. We're going to talk pretty much only about the offense. Um, and then because you guys have done your homework on Daniel Jones, I, I really want to pick your guys' brain or pick your brain on, on a few things. But I want to start off with Eli Manning. Basically, what do you think he has left in the tank? Because I'm kind of in the middle where it's like we see that the arm talent is still there and he didn't become dumber in the past two years. So we know that he can still make the decisions if he's willing to, you know, you know, move it downfield. But we also saw last year where you know, maybe age has caught up to him where he self-sacked himself. It seemed more than more than years past. You know, I know the O-line was bad, but it seemed a little over the over the top and just conservativeness in the offense in general. So where do you stand with Eli Manning going into 2019? Yeah, so for me with Eli, um, those who have listened to me for a while or have followed my work on 24-7 know that I have been calling for a quarterback change for quite some time. I was firmly in the camp of the Giants should have drafted Josh Rosen or Sam Darnold over Saquon Barkley. Um, and then this year, you know, I was I was not really – I was kind of lukewarm about this this quarterback class. Um, really, the only guy I loved was Kyler Murray, and I knew the Giants had no shot in him. But at the same time, I was more willing to take a chance on a guy like Haskins. And, and you know, I was I didn't have Jones on my radar, but let's just say Haskins for, for this example because of the position they're in. Any NFL team who's in this position, in my opinion, with Giants are in now – uh, you know, having at best average quarterback play, I would say from Eli Manning, um, you know, you're just not going to win consistently in the NFL. It's just, it's the sad truth of the NFL. If you don't have a court, strong quarterback play, you're really at such a disadvantage. Now, as it comes to Eli Manning, I'm not the type of guy who's going to watch Ryan Dunleavy's, you know, shot from 75 yards away at practice of Eli throwing a 25 yard out and say his arm strength is has gone because that's just not the case for Eli. His two biggest issues for me, Bobby, are not arm strength. One, and this is the one you brought up, and it's Poise. It's poise. And it's not like the set and poise. People, you know, hear that term, Bobby Poison. They think, oh, what are you talking about? Eli's one of the toughest players in the NFL. I think he is one of the toughest players in the NFL. But that doesn't mean he still has that same poise. And it shouldn't be really connected to toughness. Really, what it comes down to is his willingness and his ability to take that extra second. And it really makes all the difference on a lot of these plays to stand in the pocket and deliver the football while getting hit. And that was one of the most impressive aspects of Daniel Jones's game tape and I know we'll get to more of that later so I don't want to you know ruin that right now with spoilers but that's something the Giants are really missing out on right now it's really that half second extra second that makes a difference on a lot of snaps but then the second one and this is a bit more surprising Bobby is actually what you're saying and it's actually it's not the smarts because he's still you know really does an excellent job of reading the defense before the snap Bobby but what Eli's biggest problem in my mind is now 
is that he's not as strong and he's really become subpar at reading the defense after the snap. So he's relying too heavily, too often on his pre-snap read. And defensive coordinators have caught on to this. And what they're doing is they're bluffing pre-snap looks, knowing that if we show this, Eli's going to think this is open. And then immediately they take that away after the snap. And then he's left with no real plan to escape from out of there. And really, a lot of his plan, when he, you know, when he's, when that pre-snap read that he has is not actually there after the snap, Bobby, instead of, you know, maybe taking a chance downfield or going to off to a read that's not really next in his progression, what for, what for him now, the next read in his progression, and this is partially coaching as well, by the way, but it's also partially Eli, is that check down read. And defenses, you know, that could work in an offense that stretches the field sometimes, but the Giants simply didn't stretch the field enough. And again, for me, Bobby, and I'm saying this, and this is kind of me alone in this. Um, I haven't really seen too many people agree with me on this or even point this out. But in my opinion, the, we got here, we got to this place, not based on age for Eli. I really do believe the four years in Ben McAdoo's system uh, kind of ruined Eli's field vision and his ability to break down defenses after the snap. Because McAdoo's deep offensive scheme was all about getting the ball out in 2.5 seconds and trusting your pre-snap read. So he went into an offense. He went from an offense with Gilbride, which was run and shoot, you know, try to read downfield, try to make some plays downfield. And he was a gunslinger, Eli. Everyone knows that, you know. For the same reasons people knock Eli now for not taking enough shots, they knock him for the opposite reasons earlier in his career. Too many chances he's taking. He's trying to throw too many tight window balls, and they lead to interceptions or whatnot. So I think the four years in Matthew's offense really stymied him uh, for good, unfortunately, at this age, at 39. So... I'm not so sure there is a ceiling. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But that's where I'm at right now. No, I, I actually really like that because you mentioned with Kevin Gilbride, it was a lot of post-snap reads where, you know, and it led to a lot of interceptions because we had receivers who would run the wrong route or Eli taking a chance because it was kind of those those option routes. But I really like that offense because it's it works in the playoffs where defenses are just turned up mentally and like, with even with Eli's brother Peyton, where he was so much pre pre snap that we saw him kind of struggle in the playoffs because defenses were much more in tune and knowing what was going to happen. Where that's where I think like Kevin Gilbride's offense th- th- thrived was in the playoffs, where you have you know wide receiver if you see this coverage you move, you do this, and so I, I agree you 100% where Ben McAdoo's was quick, and I think Shermer also kind of beat that into him this year where it's like quick let's not you know let our our poor offensive line screw us and then it kind of like just as kind of like you said has turned him into who he is where he's not going to take a lot of chances you know all the checks downs to Saquon um, even with Odell it was a lot of slant routes you know dig digs and stuff like that where he's not taking the chances and like you said he's 38 years old and he doesn't want to take the hits that he took in you know like that San Francisco game in the NFC championship so yeah I I think it's a combination of it but I think you kind of hit it right on the head where He's almost he's he's plays a completely different style than he did in the you know early part of his career. But I do want to make one thing clear real quick, Bobby, just from a schematic standpoint before we move on. I'm not saying that style can't work. If you look at a quarterback like Philip Rivers, a lot of what he does successfully is getting rid of the football quickly, and it is getting rid of the football to the running backs. Now, the reason it works for Rivers though is because he's able to adjust post snap to see which kind of deep routes open up. And he'll take shots deep. He'll take shots deep all game. And he doesn't have a great arm anymore, uh, Philip Rivers, but he has excellent anticipation of what deep routes will open up, and he's got a willingness to throw it. And what that does is 
it opens up those running back routes, uh, uh, you know, underneath checkdowns, you might call them, but really what they are is just the second read in the progression to a running back. And it can work if the defense is respecting a vertical attack. But unfortunately, the defense has stopped respecting the vertical attack and has for quite some time now with Eli Manning. And then in that scenario that the Giants are in, it takes away the effectiveness of the checkdown. Right. So that leads to Daniel Jones. And I think Daniel Jones being there does pit a fire under Eli, not like to prepare better, but knowing that, like, I can't play this conservative and not worry about my job where, you know, Daniel Jones will be breathing down his neck, whether that's, you know, week one or going forward. But that let's so let's move on to Daniel. Before we go into details, what has been your progression on Daniel Jones from, you know, the first time you watched him to where you are now? I would say I'm more optimistic now than where I was. But a lot of that is just because what I see is a prospect who has a skill set that might mesh with Pat Shermer's offensive scheme and his offensive principles. When I first evaluated Jones, I was just evaluating him on an overall standpoint. And what I saw was a quarterback who doesn't have arm talent that jumps off the page to me, quarterback who throws an over-the-top style of ball, which, you know, to me, can get you in trouble sometimes uh, in the NFL when the passers is coming. Quarterback who, you know, didn't deal with pressure that well, in my opinion. And a quarterback who has that similar to Eli, a very ABC style after the snap. He tries to make make the read pre-snap. If, a, if option A is not open, then he'll go with option B. But if both of those aren't open, there's kind of no, you know, there. what I saw was kind of a struggle to, to figure out a way out of that, kind of improvise. But... When I started to kind of look at Daniel Jones and the scope of how he could fit Shermer's offense, I started to see, I started to get a little more optimistic, Bobby. And a lot of that is because the two traits I really think Jones is best at are one, like I said, his poise. And, you know, there's just countless plays, I think, back of last year where if, you know, the quarterback had stayed in the pocket just a second, like I said, or a half second longer, taking the hit while delivering the football, um, they might have turned into drive saving plays, move the sticks, maybe big plays over the top. Because you see that a lot on Jones's tape. He's able to maintain his accuracy even while getting hit. And oftentimes not from a clean base or, you know, he's not hitching into his throws. That's one thing. The second thing that really impressed me the most about Jones is his ability to maintain his accuracy while moving. So he'll roll out, and Duke didn't even do this with him that often, but when he's rolling out, especially to his right, to his left it was a little bit less, the accuracy wasn't there quite quite as, as much. And that's the same thing from when he's within the pocket, by the way. He's much less accurate, in my opinion, to the left than uh, to the right, and he doesn't trust it as much. But anyway... What he's able to do is keep his depth while rolling out to the right. So this is a really interesting strike. So he's not he's kind of moving laterally, but at the same time moving downhill uh, to the point where he can drive into his throw. So he's maintaining a good amount of velocity, but more importantly, accuracy while rolling to his right. And if you think about what Pat Shermer wants it to do, if you look back to what he did with Case Keenum in 2017 when Shermer was named the AP Assistant Coach of the Year, that offense was moving there was a lot of movement from the quarterback and throws on the run. So I think in those two at traits of his game, he's going to be, you know, in adv- he's going to add an advantage, theoretically speaking, to the Giants' offense. And then, of course, what he's going to also help the Giants with eventually when he can get up to speed is just that red zone offense, Bobby, because, you know, when you add that zone read element to the red zone, it's just a game changer because – Barkley is, is not is much more easily stopped in the red zone when the when the defensive ends can just crash right down and not worry at all about the quarterback keeping the football. But now they're going to have to worry about the quarterback keeping the football. They're not going to be able to just crash right down, and that's going to give a little more space for Barkley in those tight spaces in the red zone. 
Right. Yeah. And like you said, you know, the, the the just the threat of having a zone read completely changes what defense has to do. It opens up cutbacks to sake all, all kinds of stuff. But you mentioned in the beginning his his arm strength velocity, and I agree that he doesn't have um, a Justin Herbert, Josh Allen type of arm. But before watching him, I you know I heard a lot of oh you know his arm strength is really weak. And then watching him, it's like for me, it's like well, show me one play where his arm strength got him in trouble. Now, I know that at the NFL, safeties are a lot better. So there could be throws where it's like, okay, at the NFL level, that gets intercepted. And I do agree that he is an, you know, an over-the-top, you know, kind of just lay it in there kind of guy. Um, but, like, do you see his arm strength being an issue? Because I, I just didn't see a single play. There was, there's not a play that stuck out. It's like, man, what, what was, you know, he, he would have had this if he had just a stronger arm. Yeah, so Bobby, for me, this is a common misperception that I have, and I and you know I've had conversations like throughout with this, and I keep going over it, but I don't think I'm, we're going to get there at any point until it becomes a more common kind of term. But for me, it's not arm strength with Jones. I'm fine. I think he has more than capable arm strength. Uh, I, mean, I don't think it's that much better than adequate, but it's certainly adequate. It's more for me. It's actually arm talent. So it's really the ability to change trajectories on your throw. It's the ability to change the pace of the throw. And it's kind of more, it dives more, I would say, into accuracy than anything else and the ability to throw from different arm angles and trajectories. And like I said, just kind of layer the football with different velocities, uh, depending on where the throw, where he wants to put the throw or where it needs to be. So that's kind of where, you know, I think it's adequate, his arm talent. I just don't think it jumps off the page. And when you look kind of like at the NFL quarterbacks who are successful, when they don't have more than adequate arm talent, uh, you, you know, it's just few and far, a little bit more few and far in between uh, for major success stories. Now, can he make up for it with his athleticism? Sure. Can he make up for it with how his athleticism fits the scheme? Sure. Can he make up for it, like I said, with just those awesome poised, poised throws where he's just standing in the pocket and delivering the ball, um, you know, that extra half second? Yeah, sure. I think he can make up for all of that. But I do think it, it puts a little more pressure on a lot of those other things when you don't have that kind of other, not otherworldly, but above-average uh, arm talent. Okay. Um, now, I want to go detailed on this. Just this, this question has been bugging me. If I ever get the chance to talk to Daniel Jones, I don't care if it's seven years from now, it'll be the first thing I ask for him. The Clemson game, there was four passes that were lofted up, and, you know, Steve Levy announcing even said lofted. And we saw that maybe, like, two other times throughout the whole season. Right. What do you, do you like remember anything specifically from those plays? Because it seemed like it was almost a game plan because the corner it, it was always against a blitz and man coverage, and the corners for Clemson never looked back at the ball. Yeah. Um. And I, you know, so I've seen people be like, "Oh, look at these passes where he just throws it up." Do you think that was a Duke game plan where it's like, "Listen, if you got a blitz and man coverage, just throw up some passes because their corners never look at the ball when they're blitzing." Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this, Bobby, because we actually talked about this. Me and me and uh, me and Nick talked about this on our Jones podcast, and you know he brought up an excellent point. He blames that game on the play calling, and you know overall he he's very, 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 very down on on Cutcliffe's play calling. And Cutcliffe has a lot of credit for you know what he does, uh, what how he prepares a quarterback mentally, and kind of from like the waist up, as Nick says. But as far as his footwork, he does not focus on. He did not did not seem like he focused on that with Jones. There are certainly issues with his footwork that I think are easily correctable by Shermer and just more importantly by getting live game reps. But as far as the play calling goes, that's where he really had an issue, and it makes a lot of sense when you have a game like that 
And like I to- like I said on the podcast before on that on that Jones podcast, I've never watched a game, and I've watched that game now three or four times. I've never watched a game where an offensive line was more outmatched by a defensive line. I mean, Clemson had three defensive linemen selected in the first seventeen picks. Duke doesn't even have an offensive lineman who could sniff a practice squad. So now. If you have, if you know, if you see that early enough, or you should know that going into the game, like Cutcliffe should know that, then you need to design plays that get the ball out quick around the line of scrimmage. When you have man coverage, like you said, and there's those there's those kind of blitzes, you can beat those with a lot of different routes that are not just straight downhill shots where it seems like he's throwing the ball up because he can't get his feet set against man coverage where the Clemson quarterbacks aren't looking back. But you never saw that the entire game. You didn't see much of an adjustment at all from that standpoint. So. To me, that issue was more of the play calling. I, I've come around to that, too, after you know our, my discussion with Nick, and I kind of went back and looked at it. So that's where I stand on that, but I do understand those concerns from fans. Right. And I, I want to talk a little about the deep ball and, and third down a little bit. I, I went back, you know, I, I did the initial, you know, watch every game, take notes, and then I went and did every third down and then every deep ball, you know, 20-plus air yards. And – for, before we even get into it, have you has there been a quarterback in recent memory that was drafted this you know in the first round, even second round, that dealt with so many drops? I mean, it was thirty eight for the year, fourteen on deep passes, and fifteen on third down. I mean, I don't understand how he didn't get frustrated, and I think that's part of why the Giants like him. I, I think that's where he is similar, to Eli. Whereas, like, I was screaming at the Duke players. I don't know how he wasn't. Like, have have you ever seen anything like that with a, a top pick like him? Yeah, actually, you know what? Josh Rosen had a similar issue with uh, at UCLA the year before. I think it was like thirty-five drops he had. Not, not. I don't. I think a few less than Jones, a little bit less percent on the percentage scale. But it was a very, very similar situation with absolutely no talent really around him, uh, with the exception of Colton Miller, who I, you know, who I think was the one of the worst drafts. I said it before the draft. You can find it on Twitter. Just a total, total turnstile at left tackle with no pass protection skills at all. Um, but you know, it's a sim- That was the only thing similar that I could see. I would say to what Jones went through it too okay so the deep ball and i went and you know i went and watched all of haskins as well and i was never high on haskins and i get that people are like well why should you why should be going to a really good school hurt you well i went and you know you look at like all the first round picks who have made the playoffs out of the past five years and they're all some not not small schools but they're you know you don't have any of the alabamas ohio state um, even the guys who were picked high from like Oregon and, and Jameis, they haven't led their teams to the playoffs. So in a sense, we this, the guys that succeed aren't from those top level programs. And I, I, I just was never high on Haskins. But, you know, we heard like, oh, you know, Haskins works the ball downfield. Jones doesn't. All he does is the intermediate. But I went back and looked and Jones, you know, he, he moved the ball, you know, 20 plus air yards, 11 percent at the time, while Haskins did 10 percent. And. The numbers sucked for Jones. There, he was twelve for forty-four, but he had fourteen drops, which you know jumps the completion percentage from twenty-seven to fifty-nine. And I know drops are part of the game, but like that, fourteen drops isn't part of the game. Where Haskins had four on twelve more attempts. But where where do you stand with his deep ball? Because I actually think it's a strength of his. Um, like I said, like I said before, Bobby, for me, I wouldn't call it a strength. I think he has adequate, I think his deep ball is adequate enough. I mean, he can layer, he can do a pretty good job with it at times. There's times where it's not as accurate to me. I actually think his deep ball is actually somewhat similar to Haskins where Haskins stood out to me, uh, over Jones was not, it was not his deep ball where Haskins stood out for me was his ability to change his arm trajectory and his ability, a much more natural thrower of the football, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, and it shows up 
in my opinion, uh, from an accuracy and velocity standpoint in that more in that 10 to 20 range than the deep ball. I think both of those quarterbacks have an adequate deep ball. I mean, if you want to call Jones is excellent, that that's fine. I can see where you're coming from there, Bobby. I'm not saying that you're crazy or anything. I, I know what you see, what you're seeing. I see, you know, he puts some very good deep balls up there for sure on tape, but I would, for me, I would call it just adequate. I wasn't necessarily going as much as arm talent. Cause I'm like, and, you know, we after the draft, I got into the, the arm talent debate where I never said he had, like, the strongest arm. But I was like, I haven't seen an issue. But I'm also not, like, an expert in that area. But it was more of, like, the decision-making on the deep ball because, you know, uh, a 59% clip, which, you know, with the drops. Um, and they weren't, like, ticky-tack drops. Like, I even no, – they were big I, drops. I, he lost a lot of yards. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I you know, I didn't count, like, you know, a guy gets a hand on it while he's getting slammed at the very same time. And like it, it was just frustrating to see those drops. But like the decision making on the deep, on the deep throws. Well, yeah. What did you, you what did you think of that? Yep, you bring up a great point, and it's exactly what Pat Shermer said after minicamp. What he likes a lot about him is that he's starting to get more comfortable. And as he's starting to get more comfortable, and the last you know set of OTAs in the minicamp, he's starting to take those shots. And that's more of what I like from what I've seen from Jones. The you know the willingness to take those shots, to read it, to see it, and to take that chance. So like I said. Philip Rivers doesn't have any kind of crazy arm, never really did, but he's one of the best deep ball throwers, in my opinion, in the last 10 to 15 years. He finds those open, somehow keeps finding those open spaces to throw the ball into, and that's kind of, for me, what it's more about, of anticipating uh, where that open space is going to be, and that's something I think Jones does a pretty solid job of. Okay, so I, I want to move off Jones. We've we spent too much time on Jones. I knew that was going to happen, though. Um, Orvlo- you said it a little bit, the and Orvlosky, no, he kind of, Got, like it was pretty shared where he said, you know, when A plus B doesn't equal C, and he used that throw from the Temple game, which when you look at the stats, like, wow, that was his best game. But when I think it was a tape, I think it was kind of his most mediocre game. I mean, you know, he had he had the five touchdowns, but, you know, two of those were, you know, like within the five-yard line, and one was like 80 yards of yak. Um, and there was that, that really bad throw where, the, you know, they disguised the coverage, and he kind of panicked and threw it up and intercepted. And it seemed like everyone kind of took that clip. And I, I know that you I, – I, I went and listened to your last show, and you agreed with him. Um, and I, I get critiquing that. But where do you stand on, like, Dan Orvlosky's, like, evaluation of him? I mean, the reason I kind of take issue with Dan Orvlosky is I, I, I hate to, like, accuse him, but it almost seemed like Haskins came in the studio. He picked Haskins, downed on Jones. And, like, he had a take that said he's too all shucks where – I mean, like you said, he stands in the pocket – um, even in that Wake Forest game, like a fourth and one where he rips the ball out of the running back's hand. Like, I just, yeah, maybe in his interviews, he's too all shucks, but nothing on tapes went like, man, this guy no. just, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I don't think the all shucks thing is, is a, is an accurate thing. I think the, the, you know, the ABC thing, the A plus B equals C thing, or however he describes it, I, I kind of see it in a different way. I see it more of like the Eli problem for me with that pre-snap stuff. That's more of just coaching and it's going to be the same, which I mean, Shermer has a similar, similar style, but the difference is, for, for Jones, I think what's going to happen is as he gets more comfortable, his his reaction is going to be to take that shot downfield rather than, you know, or at least take some shots downfield, which will then open up kind of that underneath stuff with Barkley, which is, you know, should be a huge success. Like, those checkdowns to Barkley didn't work as well as they should have last year, and they really should. And that's another issue that I, that I have with Manning um, that I think Jones will fix, and that's the screen pass. Eli's never been a good screen pass thrower. He doesn't create space to throw the screen. He doesn't change his arm angle on the screen. And actually, Jones does a pretty good job throwing screens and balls around the line 
line of scrimmage in general. So that's something interesting that I think can definitely help. But again, with that Orlovsky thing, with the all shucks, uh, with, with the point about, all, you know, the all, there's too much all shucks through his game. I don't see that at all either. I think that's kind of driven more from kind of the interviews or whatever people think of his personality. Yeah. And like, and like they were like, there's no doubt. Like I'm, I've been pretty high on the Daniel Jones support, you know, after watching, you know, all the games. Um, and I, I try, I, I know there's a Homer in me, but I tried to put that away when watching it. Um, but I, like, I went back and watched all of Josh Rosen's tapes and who I'm like, I'm super, I was super high on Josh Rosen. In fact, I was all in on trading for him in the draft. I thought that was best case scenario. And, you know, if I took some truth serum, I probably still would say that. Um, it's but like, usually I, like the best case scenario, but you know, <laughs> they have their own, they have their own opinion of, of Jones. They fell in love with Jones. That's what yeah. Dave Roman does. He's a fall in love type of GM. He fell in love with Barkley. He fell in love with Jones. That, I mean, there's pros and cons to Gettleman as a GM. Way more pros than people are willing to give him credit for, but certainly some cons too. To me, that's one of his cons, but we'll move on. Yeah, and, and yeah, and the point I was making was like, like there was a Rosen had the exact same play as that, that play in the Temple game that Orvlowski highlighted, right. where I was like, you know what, like maybe some, you know, college QBs make bad decisions. So yeah. I, I, I really believe in him, but I, I do want to move on to the receiving core a little bit. Um, obviously, Odell's gone, and that's a huge hole to fill. I think more so in the red zone than the, you know, driving down the field, although both very huge with Odell gone. Golden Tate, I'm I really high on Golden Tate. I think, you know, the trade to Philly screwed him. I, you know, his, his numbers dropped, like, severely from that. In fact, you know, he was on pace for over 100 catches and almost 1,200 yards with his first seven games of Detroit. I know that doesn't always pan out. Like, you're going to get the same amount. But what? Do, how do you think Golden Tate fits in this offense, and how do you see him as a replacement for Odell? Yeah, you're really high on Tate, Bobby. I might be even higher on Tate. Um, a recent, you know, Pat Thorman, a fantasy football guy for pro football focus, or used to be, um, and he put out something today, or it was yesterday maybe, where Matt Stafford, over the last however many years of his sample size with Tate versus when he was gone, averaged 6.5 fewer fantasy points per game. Golden Tate's also a player who has by far and away the most – uh, forced missed tackles after the catch of any receivers in 2012. People saw that signing and they thought, what are they doing signing a veteran? When, meanwhile, nobody realizes, A, how hard it is to find receivers at the NFL level with how many uh, massive amounts of draft busts there are in the first two uh, two rounds of the draft over the last 10 years. You can look that up and cross-reference it to fact-check me there, but it, it, it'll 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 uh, you know pan, pan out true. One of the biggest bust rates is at the wide receiver position. Um, and then when you add that in, he's still only 20, 30 years old. He's fine. I mean, he's got years left on, on those legs, in my opinion, at least two to three good years left for the Giants. And, you know, people questioned the signing, but what they didn't realize was Sterling Shepard did an excellent job playing on the outside on the boundary when Odell Beckham was out. And the Giants' offensive scheme in general is more based on creating space and creating yards after the catch. So what they wanted to do was fill a roster with as many players as possible who can do that, and Tate fits right into the billing. So I'm with you. I'm very, very high on Golden Tate. Yeah, I, I just think he's a gamer, and I think the wide receiver position is much more c- cerebral than people make it out to be. And it seemed like GMs almost caught on with that this year with DK Metcalf, where, you know, the number, like the, the combine numbers and all that were amazing. But, like, when you watch Ole Miss, it's like A.J. Brown's clearly the best receiver on this team. And it was like the first year where GMs didn't fall in for fall in love with a guy who can run fast and jump high. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in tape. But you mentioned moving Shep to the outside most likely full-time. 
Um, and I went and looked at the numbers. I don't know the snap count, but in the, on the, in the slot, Shep was 38 uh, catches for 428 yards. On the outside, 28 for 444. How do you see him fitting in on the outside? Because I, I like him there, but I'm also not super confident. Well, I'll say this, Bobby. I actually may disagree with you a little bit on that. I think it's not going to be a full-time move. I think they're going to be interchangeably used, uh, Tate and Shepard, on the outside. Um, and then, obviously, with, with either Coleman or Latimer as the other boundary guy, kind of just that deep knife to try to you know open up the, the, the offense a bit if Eli's willing to take those shots, uh, or if it turns out to be Jones eventually. But, you know, as far as when he is used on the outside, which I do think will be probably the majority of the snaps over Tate in that standpoint, even though Tate, again, was not bad as an outside receiver as well uh, during his career with the Lions. And I'm like you, I throw out every game on with the Eagles for Tate because the guy's asked to pick up a brand new playbook in the middle of the season uh, with a quarterback he has absolutely no rapport with, and it makes no sense to expect some production there, uh, at least in my opinion. So as far as Shepard goes on the outside, I, I believe that, you know, he can he can work it dep- there's going to be defenses he's going to do better against. Like, as you saw against the Colts last year, Colts played that simple. I, w- I don't want to say simple, but simple in the sense that it, it, it they didn't change a lot of what they showed pre-snap uh, after the snap, which is one of the reasons why Eli had such a good game. But anyway, they played kind of more of a zone, simple zone defense, and they just, you know, expect that zone to win out. And it had for the Colts in a lot of games, so I get it. Um, against those type of defenses, I think, I think Shepard can win. Where I'm more concerned is kind of the defenses that have the bigger cornerbacks who can kind of bump and run with him on the outside and kind of over-physical and kind of get physical with him. Uh, and, you know, where he can't doesn't have a two-way go like he has in the slot where he can go either way and use his quickness and his route running. Uh, but I do think his route running is extremely underrated. I mean, one thing that kind of goes overlooked, uh, Nick, like I said, Nick Turch in my podcast, those in the Big Blue Banter podcast, he, he would tell me last year that when he watches the tape, in his opinion, he thought that Shepard was the best route runner on the team. And that was with Odell Beckham on the roster. So, I mean, you take that how you will. And I know that's blasphemous for some Giants fan. You can't say anything bad about Odell Beckham Jr. But the fact of the matter is, I think Shepard's route running is strong enough at this point of his career. And his rapport with Eli, more importantly, is strong enough at this point of his career that he can have some success on the outside. Yeah. And like Shepard, like I've more looked at the numbers. I haven't actually went like wide receivers. It's just not my thing. It's hard for me to, it's hard. I'll I'll admit when I'm not good at judging something and wide receivers is one of those things. I kind of rely on numbers more so. Um, But Evan Ingram, the numbers for him, you know, those last four games when Odell was out were pretty good. You know, he he averaged 40 more yards per game. Um, I can't remember how much his target rate jumped up, but it, it jumped up a decent amount. Obviously, Golden Tate's going to be there, so I, I wouldn't expect a mirror image of that. But do you think he has the most uh, the most room to improve with Odell being gone, or or who out of him and Shep, who do who do you see having growing more with Odell gone? I think it should be Ingram. I think they're both going to have a, a strong season if Eli is the quarterback. Uh, I'm not sure he will be. I'm not sure for how long he will be. I should say, but I think with Ingram, it just comes down to the injury big deal about the drop passes and his rookie year he had i think it was a 59 percent. and somebody tweeted about this today so i'm I, i'm sorry it was me give credit it might have been it was you. Me. <laughs> yeah it was. yeah good there you go bobby good good shit um excuse my language but you know no worries and his and his drop rate normalized in last year the issue for ingram really is just the fact that he took that low hit in week three uh tried to come back and while trying to come back and it was taking him longer than he thought as as happens a lot with injuries, we saw it with Durant, we've seen it all throughout the history of sports. When you're trying to force your way back from an injury, sometimes your body overcompensates, and in that same area of the injury, 
you get another injury. So then a hamstring injury popped up for Ingram. And again, it's popped up again this spring, this hamstring injury. And so really his whole year was clouded by injuries until the end of the season when finally he got a little bit healthy for that four-game stretch without Beckham, and you saw what he's capable of. Now, as far as Ingram goes, he's not the player I thought he would be, I guess I should say, when he came out of Ole Miss. Part of that is because the Giants don't really use the vertical seam, uh, unfortunately. I mean, it's just something that, you know, we thought – we thought might change with Ingram's addition, but I think it's more of an Eli problem than anything else. I hate to say it, uh, it just is what it is, but where he can still win. So he's not the kind of, so he's not utilized in that sense where, where he obviously, he had a lot of success at Ole Miss, but also he's not really the tight end that wins in the slot with quickness. He doesn't have that Zach Ertz kind of game. Instead, he wins with that second and third gear. Again, another after the catch player. And you saw that in the Redskins game. You saw it in the Colts game. You know, they even used him on some end arounds and some different t- styles of play. But really, when Ingram gets going, it's when he kicks up into that second and third gear and has that kind of Hakeem Nicks-like breakaway speed, um, kind of, you know, it's subtle speed. So, really, I think this offense is built for him. I said it last year. I called him as my breakout player last year in training camp on the offensive side of the ball. I still think he would have been if it wasn't for that low cheap hit against the Texans in week three. But I think we'll finally see it this year. Yeah, I really hope so. And and like you led off with the injuries, I think are the biggest question mark with Ingram. And like even in the OTAs, him sitting out, while it's not much, it is still alarming. And I, I think that will be his biggest battle is staying healthy because I yep. I, I think Sh- I think Shermer and and the Giants offense will try and get him more involved. But Dan, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you going longer than you probably expected this to be. Before we let you go, we'll obviously tag you and everything, but where can people find you? Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Again, I had a great time on here, so no worries at all. It was, it was fun talking Giants football with somebody who's very, very, very knowledgeable about the team. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And not only about the team, but, you know, the X's and O's, the stuff I like. So if anyone wants to follow my work, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Schneier NFL, D-A-N-S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R NFL. And you can do me a favor if you want to check out the Big Blue Banter podcast. It's another one just like this one. Um, it's with me and my, myself and my co-host, Nick Turchin. Our goal is simply during the season, we break down the all 22 uh, coaches film from the week before. And during the off season, we use that all 22 to kind of form our opinions about where the team is headed uh, and in what direction. And then lastly, if you want to uh, kind of help my page views and help my bottom line for my actual job, you can follow all my work at 247sports.com uh, backslash NFL backslash New York, New York Giants. Um, you can probably search that on Google and find it. A lot of it goes up on the CBS Sports app as well if you're there. And if you want to join a, a good Giants Facebook group with a lot of Giants fans, you can uh, type in New York Giants on 24-7 Sports on Facebook and then get all the content there as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I couldn't recommend you more. You do good stuff. And I've given you a good amount of page views just on your off-season schedule uh, uh, <laughs> article alone. I mean, I've went to that probably like 25 times to good. check, okay, when's the next OTA? So I, pre- <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I think you're the only one who did it too. So, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on. It was a, it was a really good conversation. And uh, hopefully we could do it again some other time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on, Bobby. All right, All right thanks. All right, before we get in the mail, I just want to say, because we recorded the whole show before we did the interview, that interview was really good, really worth it. Um, I love talking X's and O's with Dan. And people who know me know that I hate doing interviews, especially player interviews. But even guys in the media, a lot of times it's just bland. It's boring. It doesn't capture attention. But that was a really good interview. I really appreciate Dan coming on. 
I'd say one, of, if not the best, one of the best interviews we've done with a content guy because we got to talk X's and O's. And anyone knows me, I'm a nerd for that stuff. So I just wanted to say that since I didn't say it in any other part of the show. All right. Take it away, Steve. Mail time. Mail time. The mail's here. Come on. Bye, guys. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Thanks, Steve from Blues Clues. Danny, let's get to the mail. First question comes from at Coach T-O-B-C NYC. He asks, if DJ outperforms Eli in preseason, do you think Giants still go with Eli as a starter? The problem with that is Eli rarely plays in preseason as it is, and I don't see that changing because the Giants, Eli started week one. That's my opinion. I don't see a world where Eli doesn't start week one unless injury happens or Daniel Jones is just that good in like camp and all throughout preseason. So I see Eli starting week one no matter what. They're going to give Eli the opportunity to be the starting quarterback, and then if it goes south, then they'll go to Daniel Jones. But if the Giants continue to do what they do with Eli in preseason, don't expect to see Eli until like maybe the longest he'll play is in week three, and week two he'll probably play like a quarter or a few drives. Then week four he'll play nothing. Week one and four will be nothing. So I say DJ, Daniel Jones, I don't see him starting week one, even if he has a great preseason. Yeah, the further we get away from those Pat, that last Pat Sherman press conference, uh, I don't think there's a chance at it, and I don't, I don't think preseason games would have much impact on it. Now, if there was a chance of Daniel Jones starting Week One, it would have to be through practice. You actually learn more through practice than you do those preseason games because, and Dan, or sorry, Daniel Jones would have to be getting first team reps in practice. Um, and last year we didn't see anybody besides uh, Eli get first team reps for one day where they kind of gave some of the starters some rest. So, and unless Daniel Jones is getting a handful of first team reps in practice, then then it's like okay, this is an actual QB battle. Until that happens, it won't. It, it's just not going to happen, uh, no matter how well Daniel Jones plays in preseason. Um, and like you said, like Eli, we're not going to see a whole lot of him in preseason, and. I don't. I don't think there's much he can do badly to lose his job going into Week One preseason wise. Now, if he's horrible in practice and Daniel Jones is lighting it up, then that's a different story. But I don't think preseason games have much that much of an impact as far as like a QB battle. No, yeah, uh, yeah. As you said, as, as if Eli is bombing in practice and Daniel Jones is lighting it up, Dan, Eli will be our starter Week One. But until then. Well, yeah, until then, we just had to believe Eli's our week one starter. Next question comes from at Bruegel underscore Poppy 20. Good afternoon, fellas. Do you guys think this is a hot seat year for Shermer and the rest of the coaching staff? Or if the Giants unperform, do they give it one more year to sort of complete the plan? There's a second question after this, which is kind of a, a I think, a response to that one. We'll get to that in a second. But I, I don't see this being a, a year for Pat Duff. Proven year for Pat Sherman because this is only his second year, and the Giants are really in a rebuilding, not a rebuilding mode. They're in a, they're in like they're trying to execute the plan. Basically, I if anything, it will be Mike Shula that gets fired because he'll they'll be able to blame it on Shula, and possibly James Betcher, if anything goes wrong on both defensive and offensive side of the ball. Now, unless this becomes a Ben McAdoo type situation, then it will be different uh, if he's making poor judgment decisions. But I don't see this being a, 
a year where Pat Shermer could get fired. Basically, there his term is riding on Daniel Jones, and the same for Dave Gettleman. Yeah, I agree with you on hundred um, percent. Because of having the young QB, you don't want to switch QB or switch coaches on a brand new quarterback. Like that's been proven to be really bad for quarterbacks when you're constantly switching up their coaches. And I think the Giants understand that coach stability and not being quick to pull the trigger on firing guys is really good. And it's kind of worked for them for a while. Obviously, Ben McAdoo was quick. But, yeah, the the only path to a patch from firing was, like you said, where he would have to completely lose the locker room. The season would have to go down in flames real bad. Like It would, it would have to get like real ugly, like Ben McAdoo style. And he'd have to like lose the locker room where guys are going at him. Um, there's no respect there for him. Like that's the really the only reason, and that a lot of times is why coaches are fired. It's not always X's and O's because, uh, you know, gain, gaining the locker room and being like the CEO of the team is just as important as not just as important, but it's as important as X's and O's. So yeah, um, I don't see there really being a path to Patrick being fired unless it's just completely utter chaos. No, yeah, and. As you said, changing a coach on a young quarterback is harmful to them. Obviously, we're not sure how that's going to work when Baker Mayfield or Freddie Kitchens, but that's different because Freddie Kitchens was already there teaching Baker Mayfield. A better example would probably be Sam Darnold and uh, Topples, and now Adam Gase being the new head coach. How will that affect Sam Darnold's mindset of already being with a new head coach in his second year? And and as I said, I solely believe that if something goes wrong for the Giants, it will be Mike Shula. And uh, James Betcher possibly taking the falls. That's just my thoughts on that. Yeah, and it, it'll be a hard locker room to lose. Like, one, because if Eli's struggling really badly, you throw in Daniel Jones and you automatically just buy yourself time there. Um, yeah. As far as, like, you know, as much as we may, as much as people may love Odell, Vernon, Snacks, like, they, like they were kind of, they like, they held the post of the locker room. They had money. Odell only the last year, but like they like the leaders affect the pulse of the locker room. Like it's just the kind of way it is. I mean, and who are the leaders on this team? Eli, he's not going to let the locker room be lost. Um, Saquon, uh, I, I think Saquon is a leader on the team just because of his maturity. He's not going to, you know, be that type of guy. Shep, I, I think Shep is very, I think Shep is very influential. So I think like he actually like not looks up to Saquon. But, like, almost follows suit with how guys like Saquon are acting. Um, and then Tate's a complete professional. The O-line, you got professional from left tackle to right tackle. Um, on the D-line, you got some young guys. So, you know, they you can't really you can't really lose those guys. Linebackers, you got some vets and some rookies. And then on the backside, Jabril Peppers seems like a guy that, like, he's, he's the only guy I could see, like, getting frustrated and going off. And I think he's just excited to be a giant. So, yeah, and Jenkins, like, he'll be gone if he if he acts like that. He'll either be traded or cut if he's going off. Um, so, yeah, I, I just – I don't really see any path for Pat Turner being fired unless it's just total chaos, and I don't think there's any path of that either. No, yeah. And this question comes from at MacJim68. It's almost in response to – uh, Bruegel underscore Poppy twenty. It questions. is a response. I it just is. think they forgot to respond. Yeah, all, right. <laughs> all right, but he he asked. We'll put it as a question. Just two seasons ago, Giants were three and thirteen, and all agreed with the and all agreed with the worst roster in the league. No new coach to be on any hot seat after only two years. But this is New York media, after all. I mean, I agree with that 
idea. Uh, I don't think the Giants are easily well. They may, they're swayed by the media, but they're not gonna. The reason why Ben McAdoo was fired because of all the bad press they got with benching Eli, and it was just a buildup of things. He lost the locker room. He had DRC suspensions. He had Landon Collins calling Eli Apple a cancer. What else? It was it was just you had Bobby Hart. That was at the end of the season, but Bobby Hart and Eric Flowers calling it quits. So. It was just a build-up of things. and That was wild, man. Now, yeah. Looking back at that end of that season, that was just like – that was what we just described what would happen for Patrick Murray fire. That was utter chaos. Yeah, like the fact that that all happened in one whole season and like consecutive weeks, it was just craziness what the 2017 season was. So, yeah, Patrick Murray, he's not going to get fired this year. Uh, it all – as I said, it's Daniel Jones is – Time when if Daniel Jones flops, then it'll be the end of Shermer and Gettleman. And as long as Pat Shermer can keep his locker room in check and he doesn't lose anyone, Pat Shermer will be the Giants head coach for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and we're gonna win, baby. Just yeah. win, baby. So it won't. We won't even be asking these questions because we are just gonna win, baby. Um. So yeah, that's it for the show. Um. I, I have to. I have to admit something. I. You know, I put out. I went to the mailbox twice that one day to send us stickers. I still haven't sent out the other ones. I just got really lazy this weekend. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll have those out tomorrow. Promise. So by the time you're listening to this, I'm writing out all the envelopes. Um, that whole idea of like trying to think of something edu- something individual for each handwritten note really <laughs> has bummed me out. It's like I got to think of 15 stupid jokes to do. For for these next envelopes. So, but no, we appreciate you, everyone, reaching out, posting the stickers. It helps. It helps us gain followers, listeners, and that's the goal of all this. And I've been spending way more money than I thought on scratch off tickets, trying to go to training camp. No success. I won twenty dollars on a two dollar, reinvested it. You know, because you know that's what this is about: yeah. is training camp, and lost all that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm probably down like a like I said, fourteen dollars a week. That was on like Thursday. Um, since then I've spent like 50 bucks, which is the most I spent in scratch off tickets like in the last year combined. So, but I will still push forward and buy scratch off tickets whenever I have some cash on me and I'm going to be a training camp. I believe in it. Unless you want me to represent your company, then I'll go do that. All right, Danny, anything before we go? Now we got nothing else. It was a slow day, but we got a good interview and we were able to answer some good questions. Yep. All right. We appreciate you coming back, uh, coming again, coming on Dan Shiner. Hopefully the interview happens because we've talked like it and I'm, I'm recording it in 20 minutes from now. Be real awkward if it's not. <laughs> um, all right. We'll see you guys uh, on Friday. Let's go big blue. <laughs>